Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Uh, Brian, great to be able to catch up with you. Um, it's been a while, but my goodness, it's so great to to see you. So it's hard to believe, you know, how much I, I miss everybody. I'm sure Likewise, like Catherine, it's it's, uh, it's good to be back and um, digging into the media issues, albeit in a two dimensional format this time. But um, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, let, let's get your your top down view, your macro, macro view right now. Of course, there's been so many fits and starts as it relates to uh, the market valuations, overheated concerns with respect to too much stimulus. Um, how are you looking at the pullback that we're experiencing? Yeah, I guess Catherine, the way we think of it is, um, you know, just kind of a normal pause and what we still see is an ongoing cyclical bull market and wow, what a cyclical bull market it's been, you know, it's only about 14 months old, but it has been the strongest cyclical recovery off of a bear market we've seen in modern history. Um, but we think there's more gas in the tank. And, uh, you know, as the cliche goes, markets climb a wall of worry. And, you know, we can talk about some of the things that are worrying markets, but uh, we see a very, very, very robust economic backdrop. And we can talk about some of the reasons why we uh, believe that will continue. But, um, you know, it's game on for uh, risk assets and for stock markets, in our view, um, you know, certainly throughout the remainder of this calendar year and, and probably longer. Okay, but, but let's uh, unpack that a little bit just in terms of the concerns out there that seem to be winning the day. Well, so I guess um, the number one uh, sky is falling argument that we hear is, uh, you know, a cry from the bond markets. Obviously, bond yields have backed up quite a lot, you know, call it 100 basis points on 10-year bonds in Canada and uh, similar in the U.S. off of uh, you know, historic generational lows that we saw last year. So, uh, you know, if we just sort of took that snippet of data out of context, we might see that as cause for alarm. Um, but the thing we have to remember is the level of interest rates. So they're still very, very low. They're still, you know, if you looked at a 40-year graph, they're still kind of near the, the x-axis asymptote almost. So, uh, we don't see this level of interest rates as being, um, you know, something that's going to break the bull market. Um, and, and then the other thing about interest rates is people often make the mistake of thinking, well, there's just one interest rate and it's the government risk-free rate. But, you know, you do need to think more broadly about credit conditions. And we see credit is wide open. You know, bank lending standards are not particularly tight. Uh, the high yield bond market is wide open. Spreads are pretty narrow and the investment grade market, you know, even more um, accommodating. So, uh, credit is flowing. Mm -hmm. hmm. uh, and Brian, when we think about the U.S. jobs numbers that missed expectations last Friday, which was, I mean, I don't know, it was almost so hard to believe how far off the consensus estimates were. I don't know how that quite happened. Um, but what was the market interpretation of that, do you think, and what's the right interpretation? 
You mean, I think the market uh, by and large shrugged it off. I mean, normally if you saw a half a million uh, job miss on a payroll print, which remember is empirically the number one most market moving economic data release each and every month, um, you know, you would see blood in the streets and probably a two, three, four percent pullback on that day in the market. So we didn't see that. And we didn't see much more than kind of flickering on the tape in the bond market either. Uh, so I think the market interpreted it correctly, which is it's sort of normal random statistical variation around what is, you know, a 12 plus month enduring trend of job creation, or maybe more appropriately said, uh, recovery of lost jobs. And so, you know, when I looked at the market as well, in terms of the market really striking it off, and in many ways, it's because, you know, the risk on assets or equity market, if, if that's what we're looking at, which we are, um, are, are basically saying, well, look, the Fed's going to have your back for even longer. They're going to continue to stimulate uh, the economy and, and make sure that we actually do see a recovery. Uh, at the same time, though, we are hearing from, you know, very well-known money managers, Drucken Miller today, uh, indicating, well, and may, many people have said this or have concerns that the Fed is going to stimulate too much. Well, that's, that's a legitimate risk. And so I think that's why you're seeing thematically these so-called reflation trades outperforming value over growth, commodities over tech and so on. Um, and I think the risk is that you've got um, kind of two feet on the gas pedal. So, you know, we needed the Fed last year because we didn't have fiscal stimulus. Now we have a new administration in the US. Um, we have red ink as far as the eye can see in Canada here as well you know, which poses longer term kicking the can down the road problems of all of its own. But, you know, arguably the need for aggressive, unprecedented or unconventional monetary policy is somewhat alleviated by the trillion, you know, multi-trillion dollar stimulus in the U.S. and the, the hundreds of billion of stimulus that we're still seeing here in Canada, even while uh, the job market has recovered most of the jobs that were lost um, last year. But the thing about inflation is it is a lagging indicator of monetary policy. And I think what the Fed is telling us and the Bank of Canada is towing the line as well is that we're willing to tolerate an economy that runs a bit hot, uh, more so than we would have been in the past. So, you know, I think investors are correctly positioning for that by buying and bidding up the shares of, you know, pro-reflationary themes. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk a little bit about lumber today as well. Um, let's talk, you know, just to kind of go on the thematic side of, of your bullish case, at least for the remainder of this year, and it sounds like even into 2022. Um, what are the key drivers of that? Well, I think it's broad-based economic growth. You know, some of the indicators that I would point uh, you to would be job recovery. So 14 million jobs created plus uh, in the last 12 months in the U.S., um, Canada has had job growth in nine of the last 12 months. Admittedly, you know, we had some job losses last month, given the more stringent lockdown and social distancing measures, but the underlying trend is, is intact. Then we've got um, very robust household incomes, household savings rates, uh, retail sales, for instance, in Canada are, uh, are back to year-end 2019 levels. Housing starts you know, arguably the biggest ticket item in any household's consumption basket are, you know, screaming hot and are at all time highs in many parts of this country. So, you know, I think you're seeing a lot of consumer confidence, seeing a lot of corporate confidence, big ticket M&A, for instance, Rogers Shaw, Kansas City Rail, CN Rail, and so on and so forth. So I just think there's 
overwhelming evidence that we've got a very strong economic backdrop here. Uh, and it's going to be hard for kind of niggling around the edges on interest rates to derail that um, in the near and medium term. Are you at all concerned though, when I think about what could rock the Canadian housing market, and I've had obviously, you know, so many conversations about this over the past 10 years, that's for sure. Um, but I think one of the key items or metrics would be what happens to one's job. If you don't have your job, um, the likelihood of you being able to pay your mortgage or continue to pay it, I mean, there's a risk there. It's, it's almost more so important to take a look at the jobs picture versus the interest rate picture, perhaps, as it relates to the Canadian housing market. So what's your interpretation of the Canadian jobs data? Well, I, first of all, to the basic premise of the, the question, yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, whatever effect interest rates are going to have on affordability and mortgage payments is overwhelmed, like, you know, 10 to 1 or more by, you know, the binary risk of like one zero job or no job. If your income goes to zero, you know, it gets pretty hard to pay your mortgage. And so what we did see last year is... A combination of things. First of all, OSFIS, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions that regulates the banks, uh, gave kind of credit leniency and capital leniency to the banks, you know, if they voluntarily deferred uh, delinquent mortgage payments, which they did. And the overwhelming majority of those mortgage payments are now, um, you know, up to date. And then secondly, the federal government, uh, and to a lesser extent, the provincial governments, de facto, socialized the loan losses that would otherwise have been eaten by the banks and their shareholders via, you know, multi tens of billions, if not north of $100 billion of transfer payments and early payments to households in the corporate sector. So, you know, that shored up that risk. And so now we've kind of gotten past that most dire um, phase of risk because jobs are coming back. So, you know, jobs are still always and everywhere going to be a risk case by case to a household making their mortgage payments. But systemically, um, you know, we're through the phase of job losses or the worst of it. So I don't think that's the big risk. What could be a bigger risk is some of these so-called macro prudential policies that have been floated, you know, trial balloons, um, you know, like um, eliminating the exemption on capital gains on principal real estate. Um, that would be bad policy, um, and that would be a political suicide, I think. But, um, you know, I, so I don't necessarily think we get there, but those are sort of, you know, end of the tail or black swan kind of risk to the, the housing bull market, which in some form or another has been ongoing since the mid-1990s. It's been incredible. It, it has been incredible. It's, uh, and then obviously exacerbated to the upside even more so with, with the pandemic. Um, you know, and I think too, you know, everybody's wanting or focused much more on owning hard assets, just given the amount of stimulus from the various central bankers around the world. So that's another tailwind to the housing market anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're seeing in housing, and actually, um, it's it's timely that we're talking about this. We actually um, wrote a blog piece on our website, which your your viewers are welcome to look up at goodread.com. It's actually about lumber specifically. Um, and it actually calls out a, an anecdote that we thought was kind of relevant in thinking about lumber and housing. And, and what that was is Brookfield Asset Management, who I know you're very, very familiar with, one of Canada's biggest and most capable, uh, notoriously long-term value-centric investors, sold almost the entirety of their stake in West Fraser Timber, a stake that they have held through a series of predecessor companies since at least the mid-1990s. 
and where they've made out like bandits on it. And so, you know, um, the long and the short of it is, I think uh, Brookfield probably concurs with our view is that what we're seeing in housing is a pandemic induced step change in demand that's one time in nature because housing is a durable good. It's not like bread or milk or t-shirts. You buy one or you build a deck on your house if it's lumber we're talking about, and then it lasts for many years. We don't think we're seeing a slope change, which is lasting and permanent, that kind of is gonna be a forever move of people away from the cities and into detached housing. And so in our view, what we're seeing with lumber um, is kind of manic and is probably the late stages of a blow off top in a, a frothy uh, market and in a liquid market to that contract. So does that mean though that, um, yes, you would be in agreement of selling any of your timber holdings, timber stocks, A, but B, what does it mean in terms of people out there trying to uh, build a deck and they can't get the lumber they're paying up uh, 200%? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess we sort of said tongue in cheek in this blog entry that um, the aspiring backyard uh, projector or home rental enthusiast might do well to emulate one of Canada's largest and most long term minded value centric investors and perhaps defer that backyard rental project or building the addition on the house because yeah I mean by some accounts Catherine. Um, the rise in lumber prices, and this is U.S. data, is adding tens and tens of thousands of dollars to the cost of building a detached home. So, you know, last time we checked, lumber is still a renewable resource. So, and lumber is traded in a two to five hundred dollar range since at least the mid 1980s. So now at fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars, it's three times the highest ever prior cyclical peak. So, you know, we just don't see that it's sustainable. And so if you can wait, you probably should wait. And then to the more immediate and actionable question from our perspective as active managers, do you sell your lumber stocks? We don't own any, so we've got nothing to sell. But if we own them, yes, we would be hitting those bids hard. And, and just um, on the fundamental front in terms of, it's so interesting to see or note that the uh, price range for lumber, you know, was, was it was a tight range for decades and to see it double essentially. Um, other than demand, was there anything or what was on the supply side that would that would, you know, really have such a impetus to cause that price to go up? Well, you know, I think there's a couple of things. There's, um, you know, obviously we can probably all agree that timber is not really a scarce resource. It's not like gold or diamonds. There's lots of forests. You take your chainsaw, you cut it down. What is scarce though is uh, sawmill capacity. And so actually post the sale of Brookfield selling the West Fraser uh, timber shares, West Fraser said, we're going to fire up five new sawmills. So, you know, you're going to see a supply response. But what is throttling supply right now, we think, um, is a combination of things. One would be physical distancing restriction. So, you know, this is a, um, this is sort of a high density work environment. So if you're trying to keep people safe and not getting sick, it's hard to have your full labor force in a, in a sawmill. So there's that. And then, um, then you've got supply chain bottlenecks. Lumber is big and bulky. Some of it is seaborne. A lot of it is rail-borne, truck-borne. But doesn't matter how it moves, there are bottlenecks throughout the, um, the transportation supply chains, and it's just hard to get stuff shipped. So, and then finally, seasonality, right? This is the time of year when housing starts are coming on fast and furious, and all these backyard projects get undertaken. So it's kind of a perfect storm of a one-time step change in demand colliding with temporary um, cyclical supply constraints and seasonality. Okay, so bottom line, um, if you own 
lumber stocks, sell them. <laughs> and if you want to build weight. That's, uh, I mean, in my case, if you want to build, you hire someone to build, unless you want to cut off your fingers or toes. But uh, yeah, timing's not great. If you're procuring lumber, it's, it's expensive. We make the price to come down. Okay. Um, one of the other aspects I know that you're focusing on is um, what we heard from the federal government in terms of the budget. Um, what, what's your view in terms of continuing to stimulate the economy? Is it too much? Is it needed? Uh, you know, is the Bank of Canada incorrect in thinking that they're going to be able to really taper the bond buying program? Yeah, I, I don't have a strong view on whether the Bank of Canada is going to succeed in this taper that they've already started um, in baby steps without kind of triggering a hiccup. We saw the taper tantrums in the last cycle when the Fed took the foot off the gas with quantitative easing. So, you know, we might get to a point where, you know, the bond market blinks and calls the Bank of Canada's bluff. Um, but then, you know, more directly to the federal budget, um, the deficits are massive. Um, certainly, it comes as no surprise to anyone uh, that the 2020-21 deficit was going to be epic. And, and in fact, it's bigger than all deficits uh, accumulated by every government prior to this current Trudeau administration. So, um, yeah, big numbers. Um, what is maybe a bit more surprising and disconcerting is the fact that the taps are still wide open here in 2021-22. I don't have the exact numbers at hand, but I think the deficit is forecast to be you know, $160, $170 billion. And so when the U.S. is throwing around trillions, you know, we seem relatively frugal by comparison. But for context, the biggest deficit Canada ever, ever ran prior to these past two years was $50 billion in the great financial crisis. And, and even deficits of 20 or 30 billion were causing some on the right side of the political spectrum, some consternation during the first few years of the Trudeau administration. So some of the spending is temporary pandemic relief, but some of it is structural. And then there's other bigger, loftier, leftier ideas being floated out there like universal basic income, universal subsidized daycare, and you know who knows what else. So um, people that were around um, living in Canada, investing in Canada in the 1990s will remember that uh, eventually somebody's got to pay the bill. And anybody who runs a household budget or balances a checkbook kind of knows this intuitively. Um, you know, the federal government hasn't really woken up and smelled the coffee. And so the, the money is being spent like there's no tomorrow. And the irony of it all is it probably wasn't necessary because many of us are getting vaccinated and some of this pent up demand, especially in the service sector is going to get unleashed naturally. And secondly, we could have piggybacked or coattailed on the huge multi-trillion dollar stimulus that the US is doing, given the trade linkages between our two economies. So, you know, I think this is virtue signaling, it's vote buying, it's not fiscally prudent. And, and at some point it's got to stop, whether it's forced by an election or the government kind of wakes up and comes to their own senses. You know, I don't know how it happens, but can't yeah. continue. Well, and hopefully people wake up, you know, and when I say people, I, well, all ages, but, but certainly young people. I mean, in the 90s, I just graduated from university and it was tough to get a job. I mean, when you start to see um, the need to pull back on, on spending, I mean, corporations are front and center on that point and um, they're not going to be hiring. And, you know, young people need to know that, you know, when you start to pay the piper back, um, the job market is not easy. Well, and it's a twofold problem, I think, Catherine, because, um, you know, the stimulus, you know, government procurement and government hiring, that feeds kind of directly into the job market, either by hiring government employees 
or putting contracts out for tender, the, the private sector wins and they need to staff up. But the other aspect of it is a bit more uh, insidious and has a longer tail to it. And that's the fact that, you know, when you do take your foot off the gas and come somewhere, you know, in, in closer range to balancing the budget, um, there's only really two ways to do it. You cut spending and there's no appetite anywhere by any Western government to really do that in any meaningful way, or you raise taxes. And so corporations pay a lot of tax and individuals pay a lot of tax. And so if you raise corporate tax rates, that's a disincentive to capital investment, which we've had a mass exodus of already in Canada for tax and competitiveness and regulatory and red tape reasons already for the last five or six years. Um, and then if you start taxing capital gains, as has been floated, like you just make it a hostile place for investment and, and hiring and job creation. And it's more likely than not that the deficit gets brought to heel by tax increases than it is by um, spending cuts in, in our assessment, certainly under this government. And, and under this government, and that's key, people need to know. So, um, Brian, um, having said all of that, let's now talk a little bit about your investment um, strategy. And I mean, obviously you said that you, you do believe that we are still in a bull market, but from a geographic perspective, how do you want to allocate capital given what you just almost said about Canada and the incredible amount of spending here? Well, so we are somewhat uh, specialists, investment managers at Goodread. We have specific expertise in Canadian equities. That's my bailiwick. I manage our Canadian equity mandates. My colleague, Gordon Reed, who you know, uh, runs a U.S. large and small cap mandate. And then um, several of us collectively co-manage fixed income and preferred shares. So what we did do in our balance mandates, which comprise the vast, overwhelming majority of our clients, is uh, we reduced U.S. slightly and upweighted Canada at the start of the year. And the thinking was um, synchronized global growth and, and fiscal stimulus that we thought was likely on both sides of the, the border uh, advantage Canada because it is a more pro-cyclical economy. And it's, um, you know, the composition of the public markets, the TSX composite versus the S&P 500, is more weighted to cyclicals and value stocks and less weighted to, um, you know, secular growers and, and growth stocks. So, uh, you know, we think that's going to be validated nicely um, this, this year. And, and so far it's been working. Yeah. It's been a great call. Um, you know, you can even just look at the Canadian dollar and, and that, that tells you the whole story in terms of the trade or the investment approach that you just described. Um, what, what do you think though, or what would uh, Gordon think or your team think about some of those go-go growth stories in the United States right now that have been under pressure because of um, their valuation metrics. And again, that kind of rotation out of growth, but you know, some of the names like a Google, like an Apple, they seem to be the industry leaders and can kind of manage or march through that rotation trade. And they can, and we're still exposed to them. Um, you know, we don't really make bold all in or all out kind of bets. You know, we don't short things and we don't zero weight important sectors in the market. So it's really kind of more flavoring portfolios and finessing them around the edges. So, you know, as good uh, discipline risk managers, we take profits on things that appreciate rapidly and grow to size concentration in the portfolio. We do that in Canada. We do it in the U.S. And, you know, I won't put words in Gordon's mouth, but having owned Apple for 10 plus years and having a, I don't know how many bagger on it, you know, we've been disciplined in trimming it. And then this year, reallocating capital into more pro-cyclical areas of the market. And, and of course, we've been doing the same thing in, in Canada. 
mm-hmm. uh, to take advantage of what we think is going to be thematic leadership, given the macro backdrop that we're seeing strong, strong, strong evidence of this, um, this year in the cycle. So let's talk then about some of the Canadian focused areas for you. Um, what kind of trades have you been doing or shifting uh, allocations, whether it's, um, you know, into financials, trimming financials, um, telecom growth by acquisition? What, what are you looking at these days? So, yeah, again, sort of back to the idea that we don't kind of go all in or all out. You know, the way I've always thought of the Canadian market is in three broad buckets. And you want to at all times have exposure to all of them and at sometimes more of one and less of the other. Um, but those areas are defensive slash interest sensitive. The other is growth, secular growth specifically, um, which is a, a small pond to fish from in Canada. But we think we run a pretty concentrated high conviction portfolio and find the best of the breed there. Uh, and the other is value and cyclicals. So we've been downweighting and de-emphasizing the interest sensitive and defensive uh, corner of the portfolio and upweighting and increasing our exposure to the value and cyclical trades in the portfolio. And, you know, to give two examples, I guess, um, you know, of, of trades we made this year, we've sold Enbridge from our total return mandates, although we continue to own it in an institutional income seeking mandate uh, because it does have a 7% dividend yield. Um, we've sold Dollarama in our total return uh, mandates, and we bought, um, you know, uh, we bought uh, Transcontinental Publishing and Packaging Company, and we bought NFI, which is the bus manufacturer. Uh, so those are kind of examples where there's elements of value and cyclicality to them. And in the case of NFI, there's also a, you know, a more structural and secular growth thesis and, and shift ongoing. Uh, and then we don't want to forsake the financials either. We have a bit of an outlier um, pick in an income-seeking mandate, and that would be Laurentian Bank, which um, is not well-loved by Bay Street, but we like it um, and own it, although it's not in our total return mandates. And why is it unloved, and why do you like it? So, you know, in the banking sector, Laurentian Bank really is the bank that exemplifies value slash turnaround opportunity. It's always been, you know, as you'll remember, I'm sure, um, to an even greater extent than CIBC, the bank most likely to bump into a sharp object. And that's been the case for many, many decades. Uh, and so we've kind of not owned it and overlooked it. I mean, I can think of scarce instances throughout my 25-year career where I've owned it anywhere where I've been managing money, but we bought it uh, late last year in this income mandate. And so were it not for the fact that they had been publicly embarrassed by the mortgage underwriting irregularities a couple of years ago, were it not for the fact that they had taken the drastic, um, r- rarely precedent step of cutting their dividend 50%. You know, the last bank that did that was National Bank. And you know, you and I were in primary school or kindergarten when that <laughs> happened. Like it just doesn't happen. And then finally, had they not taken the drastic step of ousting uh, their long tenured CEO and hiring an outsider? I mean, I can't ever remember a Canadian bank doing this. You know, I would have probably been in the same camp as most of the analysts on Bay Street who rate the stock hold or sell. But I think the board explicitly acknowledges by hiring an outsider that there is a need for a cultural change and a structural change, and we're going to get it done. Hmm. Okay. Um, the other name that you mentioned uh, briefly is Enbridge. Um, let's talk a little bit about that and, and pipeline and politics. Um, I'm not sure how any of this plays out. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, we've got a looming deadline for Enbridge, which is probably dominating the news headlines today. The Michigan governor has threatened illegally and arbitrarily to shut down Line 5, which supplies Michigan and Ontario and Quebec with gas and oil and propane and jet fuel for Pearson Airport. So, um, you know, I don't know what she's trying to do unless she wants Michigan and hers to <laughs> freeze in the dark. Uh, but yeah, we sold this stock from our total return mandates a few months ago. Um, not really reflecting the fact that we thought it was, you know, poised for a collapse, but just recognizing that there's an opportunity cost to owning a low beta defensive play, a high yielder, uh, when there's other better valued um, stocks with better growth prospects this year. Uh, we do continue to own it for income in that institutional account because of the 7% yield, which we think is safe and well covered. Um, but Enbridge has kind of gone ex growth, like their dividend increase in December and the increase their dividend annually was a paltry 3%. And so that's off the boil of eight, nine, 10% that they've been doing in recent years and way off the five-year compound rate of 12%. So, you know, when you have a stock that goes ex growth and it doesn't trade at an undemanding multiple, it's still 12 times enterprise value to EBITDA, still 17 times earnings and it's growing at 3% a year, we can find stocks at 10 times earnings growing 30% this year. So, you know, there's that opportunity cost. And the root cause of it really is that um, the way pipelines and utilities grow is by deploying capital. And we have a very hostile environment, especially in Canada, to deploying capital in any capacity. And now that's mimicked in the United States, the Biden administration and the Green New Deal, pulling of the keystone permit. So if you can't put capital to work, it's gonna be very difficult to sustain that uh, dividend growth. And, and this is, you know, it's a, it's a business competitive issue for a strategically important energy infrastructure asset. If you wanna build a pipeline, ask Enbridge, ask TransCanada, you gotta convene a focus group of every migrating salmon, bird and butterfly and, you know, conduct yeah. a, uh, you know, a survey of every blade of grass in the path of the pipeline. And so, you know, capital just doesn't want to be hung up to dry for 10 years waiting to get the green light. So if um, if line five is in fact shut down, and as you point out, the governor of Michigan um, illegally shutting it down, and that is because it is under federal jurisdiction, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, what do you think that might mean to Canadians and, and people living in Ontario and Quebec as it relates to um, their energy bill. I mean, you know, like when are people gonna kind of wake up and understand that we actually do need pipelines? Um, but also, you know, what kind of, are you concerned at all that it might be a shock to the economy? Well, yeah, it will. I mean, there's, there's workarounds, but I mean, there's a reason why we build pipelines and we don't ship crude by rail where we don't have to, and least of all by, by truck. Um, I mean, we saw what happened in Lac Mégantic in Quebec seven or eight yes. years ago with crude by rail. It's dangerous. Um, it's also not cost efficient, and it's even less so when you got to move it by truck. But the demand is going to be there. You know, are, you're not going to switch off your barbecue this summer. Neither am I. We need propane. In Michigan, okay. they need it even more. They heat their homes with it in northern Michigan. And if we ever get airplanes off the ground, those pipelines, you know, via the Sarnia refineries, bring the jet fuel to Pearson Airport. So. 
you know, this is going to be not just a Bay Street issue, but a Main Street issue, and you will feel it at the pump. The workaround and Suncor, which we own, has talked about, you know, an alternative pipeline coming up through the U.S. Northeast and into their Montreal refinery. And, you know, there's workarounds, but they're expensive and there's going to be supply shortages. And, you know, as much as people who live in the cities and kind of want to paint themselves in greenwashing say, well, don't build pipelines, well, tell us that in, in December when you're freezing in the dark. Yeah, and, and the costs. And, and even anybody who's excited about getting on a plane one day, I mean, that ticket's not going to be four or $500. It's going to be $1,500. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an issue that is of national importance. And it's an issue where the federal government should be taking strong uh, leadership at the highest levels and averting this and, you know, getting the governor of Michigan to respect the law and the treaties that have been signed between our two countries. Mm-hmm. Well, until then, we, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see what happens over the next couple of days, Brian, that's for sure. Um, but then also to your point, I mean, yeah, it's, it's not going to be Wall Street, Bay Street. It's going to be a Main Street issue. I mean, it already is, but hopefully people start to understand that. Um, and, and interestingly, to your point on Enbridge and thinking back to Lac-Megantic, I mean, I was on air this, I, I can't remember the year now that that was, um, but it was a long time ago, but it's fresh in our minds and our memories, just when you think about um, crude by rail, um, you know, and um, what a tragedy it, it was. And we, we need to remember that, um, you know, on the investment front, where do you stand on the, uh, on the rail stocks? Obviously, there's a, a bidding war going on. Yeah, so we own CN Railway. We've owned it for several years. Um, you know, we, we didn't necessarily foresee that, first of all, CP would bid for Kansas City Southern, uh, let alone that CN would jump into the ring and, and up the ante. Um, but our, our thesis, I guess, on CN Rail is this is a long-lived uh, cornerstone piece of infrastructure that is very difficult to disrupt technologically. You know, unless and until Jeff Bezos finds a way of bringing a drone with 100 tons of potash or grain from Manitoba to the port, you know, that rail is going to be that iron will be in the ground and there'll be things rolling down those tracks 100 years from now. I think the best kind of proof point of that or testament to it is up until, well, still, uh, the largest shareholder in CN Rail is Cascade Investment, which is Bill Gates uh, Endowment and Foundation. And that's relevant because the time horizon for endowment or foundation is forever. So now Cascade owns a little bit less and Melinda Gates owns a little bit more, but nevertheless, I think the point is is made that um, foundations invest for the long-term forever, arguably, and and the fact that they're the largest shareholder of CN is very telling. And so we like CN because it's a, a compounder the shares since the IPO in 1995 have generated a compound annual return of 21%. Um, it's hard to fathom what that does over 26 years, but I did the math before we got on the air. I can't do it in my head. It is a cumulative total shareholder return of 12,000% for this company. So it's a great asset. Um, it's economically sensitive. Uh, and they were a pioneer in precision railroading. They're a leader in technology with automated track inspections. And Kansas City Southern, if successful, will expand their already excellent footprint further down in New Mexico at a time when trade tensions are coming off the boil with Biden in the office and Trump and his walls gone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Brian, when we um, think about the markets as well, and it's interesting when you point out uh, the 12,000% return for CN, you know, for you know viewers and, and listeners, when you see these markets 
act a little bit more on the volatile side. Sometimes it's hard to stick with, with the winners. So what's your advice when, you know, you talked a little bit about trimming positions. How, what's your calculation for trimming positions? Yeah, I guess, I mean, um, to put some numbers around it, our Canadian portfolio, which is where I spend the majority of my time, it's a concentrated high conviction portfolio. We try and diversify it by theme in those three buckets I spoke about earlier and by sector um, and by specific catalysts. But, um, you know, it's 20 stocks. And so the default is to sort of equally weight those stocks. And so the rough kind of line in the sand where we will feel a stock is carrying an undue concentration risk in the portfolio is if it approaches a 10% weighting in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. So if you have multi-baggers and year after year after year after year secular winners, you find that you're taking profits you know, every couple of years just to take some risk and concentration off the table. And because if you don't, you know, after 26 years, your diversified Canadian equity portfolio is basically a CN rail portfolio, right? It's 98% right. CN and 2% little bits and pieces of everything else. Understood. Um, Brian, just before we wrap it up, this, these weren't two areas that we were really going to get into depth in, but I just do want your, your view in terms of um, the bank stocks and, and the telecom stocks. You know, you indicated that, you know, you're rotating more into that cyclical area of the market and away from the interest rate sensitive areas of the market. So what does that mean for the telecom stocks as an example? Yeah, so in our total return mandates, we don't own any of the telcos. We own a couple of them in the um, in the income-oriented mandate. But the reason why we don't own them in um, in the total return mandates is because um, they're not growing at a compelling pace relative to some of the other opportunities we see out there. They're good ballast in a portfolio, and they proved that last year during the recession. You know, some of their businesses are very difficult to interrupt with business cycles. You know, namely the demand for cell phone service, although not roaming fees last year, uh, and the demand for reliable broadband internet, whereas others like sports and media and entertainment are, are very cyclical and, and expose some vulnerability. But, you know, overall, they're decent ballast in the portfolio, and there will come a time when we own them again in total return mandates, but this isn't the year for them. Uh, the banks are a different kind of a beast. The banks, we think, are all-season cornerstones of our Canadian portfolio. Uh, and so we own three of them in our Canadian portfolios, and we see them as a combination of um, income and growth, right? Because they pay 3 to 5% dividends, depending on when you buy them. And the basic growth algorithm is most of them aspire to and generally achieve a high single-digit earnings growth rate and a commensurate growth rate in their dividend through a cycle. Right, so they didn't last year. And this year, we think there's some, some unique tailwinds that they're going to uh, have at their back, one of which is they're lapping easy comparisons. So they provisioned heavily for credit losses last year and prudently. Um, little could they have foreseen that the government would basically socialize all the losses that they would have otherwise experience. So some of those provisions are gonna be proved to be unduly conservative. So they'll take that back into income or at the very least, they won't up them this year. And then secondly, net interest income uh, with a, a rising interest rate structure and a steepening of the yield curve, that advantages their net interest income lines. And then alongside that, they've got the stalwart fee-based businesses like capital markets, which are roaring this year with big ticket M&A going on. The frenzy in retail trading advantages their discount brokerage operations. And the general rise in markets advantages their wealth management operations, which collect fees on assets. 
And so, Brian, which ones do you own? So we own Royal, we own TD, and we own Scotia. Uh, and we think that we think those are best to breed players. And, and to be clear, Laurentian is not a best to breed player. And that's why we don't own it, you know, with a very long buy and hold view. We own it for income and uh, re-rating in the SINCA mandate, but we don't own it in our total return mandates. But for ones that you want to buy and own for, you know, many, 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 many years, these are your three. Uh, we own them for different reasons, but they do a good job of getting us geographical diversification and diversification by line of business. And we think there's like a really good line of sight to uh, a low double digit return given the current income through the dividend, which by the way, is likely to be increased this year when OSFI, the regulator, takes off the handcuffs on share buybacks and dividend increases. Uh, and then growth, you know, secular mm -hmm. growth. Okay. Um, just to wrap it up here, Brian, uh, I'm asking everybody this, um, but uh, what's, what's your latest view on owning cryptocurrencies? Yeah, we don't own them. Um, you know, sometimes it's lonely to, uh, to be wrong and alone. And admittedly, I guess we have been last number of years, but uh, you know, I think the underlying technology blockchain is going to prove to be socially useful. We're seeing, you know, good use cases uh, proving that for Ethereum, for instance. But as it relates to Bitcoin specifically, which is, you know, the predominant cryptocurrency, you know, I think this arose out of a mistrust of central authority and commercial banks and government money printing and, and debasement of currency. Um, but I think people were crying wolf, you know, too early or, or just incorrectly when quantitative easing was first rolled out in the financial crisis and perhaps even now. And so, you know, while you have runaway rampant inflation in places like Venezuela and, and other, you know, kind of um, less developed countries, you really don't here. But the, the big knock against Bitcoin is, um, you know, if you're to see it as money, money, you know, I have a degree in economics and the classical economic theory of money is it functions as a, a unit of account. Bitcoin doesn't. We talk about millionaires and billionaires. We don't talk about hundredaires and thousandaires using Bitcoin as the unit of measure. Uh, it functions as a, um, a store of value. Bitcoin doesn't do that. It moves 10 or 15% in a week. So purchasing power turns, that's not a store of value. And finally, it doesn't function broadly as a medium of exchange. You can't buy a car with it unless you buy a Tesla. You can't buy a pair of shoes with it. You can't buy Starbucks with it. You can't use it at the restaurant or for your plane ticket. You can use it on the dark web if you want to trade in illicit goods. But broadly speaking, it is not legal tender for all goods, public and private, like a fiat currency is. And I would say probably the existential threat to all private cryptocurrencies that are functioning as money like Bitcoin is the emergence of central bank digital currencies, which will um, enable the benefits of decentralized um, finance, um, but will preserve the authority and the sovereignty of governments and central banks as their agents to conduct uh, monetary policy, which, you know, we just don't think they're going to give that up willingly. Mm -hmm. I, I, hear you. <laughs> uh, I did step into the Bitcoin world, though, uh, a while ago after, you know, to your point, not being in it for a number of years, but we'll, we'll see how it all evolves and develops. That's for sure. Um, Brian, great to see you and be with you. My goodness. Uh, I can't wait for us to all be together again. And I know we will. It'll be sooner than later. 
Yeah, looking forward to it. But this has been uh, great catching up and, uh, and uh, batting these ideas around with you, Catherine. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, we'll do it again. I love it. So thanks so much. We'll see you soon.